Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. During this unprecedented period impacting us all, we are creating and sharing some extra episodes that we hope you find available, either particularly timely or relevant or that allow for some distraction. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series, and we hope that you enjoy it. So hello, today we are going to talk about health metrics at scale with our special guest, Tim Panagos, CTO of Microshare.io. I am your host, Jacob Silzer, uh, Trust and Security Director at Heroku. My passion really lies in cybersecurity, and I work closely with customers to help educate them on best practices for securing their use of cloud services. Today, I'm also joined with our lively co-host, Trey Ford, VP of Platform Trust and Strategy. Uh, Trey, would you like to give give a quick introduction? <laughs> Thanks, Jake. Hey, my name is Trey Ford. I am VP of Platform and focused on uh, security. I'm a business security leader for Salesforce. Uh, Tim, as our special guest, would you like to give a quick introduction of yourself and tell us a little bit more about Microshare.io and what the company mission is? Sure. I'm Tim Panagas, and I am the co-founder and CTO for Microshare. And uh, Microshare is now an eight-year-old company. Uh, really founded to democratize some of the data-driven technologies that I saw being used in large-scale enterprises, trying to drive those technologies in a way that makes them more uh, adoptable uh, for less traditionally served industries. So I do want to um, discuss the, how the unique events of 2020 have reshaped your business. But before we jump into that heavy topic, uh, why don't we um, first learn a little bit more about um, what Microshare was up to prior to 2020? Leading up to 2019, um, we were a seven-year-old startup. And like many startups of that age, we've been through several pivots. You know, the mission that I described, sort of democratizing technology, is very broad and we kind of set out to really navigate and find out what people were really interested in, in terms of what technologies uh, did they really want to adopt in their businesses. So we went through a number of pivots, but where we kind of netted out was that we have a novel way of collecting and um, sharing data, hence the name Microshare. And we really focused in on IoT information, Internet of Things information, specifically wireless sensor data, as an uh, important new data source that didn't really have a traditional kind of legacy home for that information. So that's really where we navigated towards and found as we uh, continued to focus the, the startup, we really found that it was in uh, sort of the built space, uh, smart buildings, um, smart spaces, that uh, we really began to find some traction. So our platform is really about bringing a lot of different wireless data together from a whole massive range of devices and making it so that businesses can use the combined views to make better decisions about how they manage their space. Um, and typically, you know, up to 2019, we were seeing um, use cases like uh, occupancy, be that desk or be that conference room, you know, knowing how many people are in a space and whether you can find a flex desk if you're coming into work or what conference rooms might be available at any given time. Uh, we were seeing smart cleaning uh, because even leading up to 2019, we saw facilities managers um, really always being asked to do more with less relative to keeping spaces clean and comfortable for the occupants. 
uh, never getting paid more on their leases. So it's uh, kind of a race to zero there. And um, things like asset tracking. So, you know, if I'm in a hospital environment, where are the patient beds, where's the medicine cart, and those sort of things. Um, obviously, a lot of variety there in terms of uh, content, but um, ultimately, it's employing the same kind of wireless sensors and bringing them together with sort of dashboards that allow people to operate. So those were our, our real big use cases in 2019. And I think it was really uh, teeing up 2020 to be a breakout year for us, uh, really getting scale, really getting a focus and having some you know, fairly broad industry uh, adoption of those kind of use cases. So 2020 was a very tumultuous year. Um, hmm. Obviously, there were a number of things that were unexpected that changed um, our way of life. Uh, you know, being in Seattle on the West Coast, we had things like the West Coast fires. It made us wide work indoors. Uh, but also, you know, we had COVID. Um, so how has MicroShare adapted to some of these changes? Like, how has this changed your product roadmap? And how are you helping some of your customers adapt to some of the changes of 2020? Yeah, obviously, it's a very disruptive time to be a part of any business, right? But um, as a startup, I think we had an advantage in that we were kind of used to pivoting. Um, if we were good at anything, it was being uh, nimble. And so uh, although it was disruptive, we certainly had some really large sales that uh, kind of got put on the back burner uh, when we came into March, uh, April, and um, really had to rethink what we were up to. Uh, the good news is that the platform was built really to be flexible enough that we could throw new technologies onto it and very quickly um, get that data in shape to be able to uh, drive new kinds of decisions. So contact tracing was the kind of immediate need in the marketplace, kind of still is. And we were able to take all the tools and technologies that we were using really for asset tracking and retool it a little bit to be able to help people use wearables to trace um, actual contacts and, and manage the, the contact tracing in a commercial environment. And um, so that was really an obsession of ours for you know, the middle six months of this year and really began to, um, at where we sit today, it's, it's kind of awesome, but we're, we're a market leader in deploying contact tracing in commercial environments right now. And that was from, you know, uh, I won't quite say a standstill, but it certainly wasn't a use case that we were contemplating as being a majority of our business and, you know, leading into the 2020 year. But, um, you know, that's really where 2020 has taken us. And as we get into 2020, the latter half, it's really about how to fold contact tracing into the wider um, offering set that we bring together. Because I think what the science has said and what people that we are working with on contact tracing are finding is uh, contact tracing is really just this start of your sort of data-driven wellness journey, if you want to say it that way. And so what we're really now seeing is the integration of contact tracing with some of the things that are more traditional for us, like smart cleaning, because visibility of cleaning in an, in a, in an environment um, really does go a long way to reassuring people. Even as we find out uh, from the scientist that uh, transmission is less likely through surfaces, it's a very visible activity and it does put employees' minds at rest when they see people going out of their way to make sure that the built space is 
uh, properly sanitized and clean for them. And air quality um, is really important uh, because now we know that it is a respiratory disease and it's airborne. And as you said, uh, Jake, even you know, air quality from smoke all of a sudden is a, a, a big issue for some of our customers. So we folded in air quality as a key component and occupancy. Uh, you know, so social distancing. Do we have too many people in a conference room? Uh, do we have people spaced out over a flex space? Um, and asset tracking are important too. Like, can people locate the machinery that they need to operate? And are those machines clusters for contact? So we need to, you know, increase the number of copy machines or the number of, uh, you know, metal punches or, you know, whatever those like machines that people tend to count on, how do you change your kind of operations from an asset perspective to also um, minimize the risk to the employees that are using those machines? So really the latter half of 2020 is now about taking all of those data sources, folding them together to give you a really complete picture of what returning to work and continuing to be productive and thriving in the you know, post COVID world. That's, that's really what we're now kind of focused on. Let's dive a little bit into um, some of the technology that you're using um, as part of these use cases. You know, you mentioned that you're doing contact tracing. Um, I know that you have like kind of a range of different types of wearables that you're using. And some of those wearables are using, you know, somewhat unique technology. Mm -hmm. In the news, we hear a lot about people using cell phones for contact tracing, uh, whether it be in Japan, Korea, other countries. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you've taken a little bit of a different approach when it comes to the technology supporting your solutions. That's right. So we've for a long time been a member of the LoRa Alliance. So it's a uh, alliance of vendors who are organized around the LoRa WAN um, spec, which is a open source, I would almost say, wireless technology. It's open source from the perspective that the bandwidth all across the world, although it, it happens in different uh, wireless bands, is free spectrum. So anybody can set up a network and use it. Um, that's what LoRaWAN was kind of uh, based on. And it's an LP WAN technology, so it's long range, low power, uh, but also low bandwidth. And it's perfect for simpler, low fidelity sensors uh, because you can stand up a network or you can take advantage of an existing uh, public network to put um, sensors on it and you know get data into our kind of cloud solution. So that was really the kind of founding technology. At the core of it, you know, we don't manufacture devices. We influence the design of them, but we are, we're not really a device group. And actually, most of my platform is cloud-based, so I really don't even care about the wireless aspects of this. But managing a network at scale turns out to be something that uh, most of our customers need to be done for them. They want it demystified. They want it de-risked. They don't want to be involved in most of that. They really just want the insights. They don't care about all that um, preliminary stuff. So as we've you know, gone into the market and, and really figured out what people are looking for, we've had to get more and more deep in you know, device selection, wireless management, and, and things like that. So that was really you know, going into 2019, that was really our strength is using the 500 plus uh, device vendors in the lower ecosystem to onboard um, the best possible uh, measurement telemetry uh, solutions for our customers. And then as we turned to contact tracing, we had this lower WAN backbone um, very much in our wheelhouse. And 
one of the cool things about that from a wireless perspective is that you can have a network in a, let's just say an office environment from a security perspective, and it doesn't need to touch your uh, office network at all. So there's no ethernet connections, there's no Wi-Fi connections. This uh, network drops into a space and operates completely outside of the typical operating environment. And that really does like put a lot of the security concerns about you know integrating uh, these as potential attack surfaces um, onto a broader sort of more attractive uh, operational environment that kind of puts that to bed and as we you know got into contact tracing where speed is of the essence you know people are looking to get back to work immediately um, being able to turn these things around really quickly because we didn't have to go through all these, oh, what ports do you need to have open? And you know all these concerns that you go through in, in corporate security. And we were able to kind of sidestep a lot of that complication uh, because the, the networks don't overlap at all. And that we found really helpful in contact tracing as well. But then as you, as you get to the fine point about contact tracing, um, there's been a lot about cell phones as the kind of locus of the, uh, the individual detections. And it, and it works fine, but it only works fine if people have smartphones. And what we found really early on is a lot of the people that were coming to us couldn't depend on people having smartphones because A, they're either operating with large workforces in uh, non-Western spaces, right? So you can't presume that a factory worker has a smartphone, at least not a secure and, and current one, right? and places where people couldn't bring their smartphones. So sensitive environments, clean rooms, you know, high security installations where people are not allowed to bring the smartphones even if they have them, what's the solution for that? So we ended up going into really looking at wearables as, the, uh, as a counterpoint to the, to the cell phone. Um, it's not that I don't believe you couldn't use uh, mobile as an endpoint. And I think over time people will realize that ultimately you want a hybrid, you want some smartphone data, you want some wearable data, and, and I think it will be up to us to kind of fold that stuff in for people as they get into that environment. But at the moment, all of our deployments really are through Bluetooth wearables that connect in a novel way to a LoRaWAN network. And what that really allows people to do is, um, also from a trust perspective, uh, that people don't have to worry about, oh, is my uh, is my employer tracking? Let me pick on you for a minute. Hang on. Let Please me pick on jump you in. All right. So this sounds like you get you guys practically stepped in it. I think you guys won the lottery. You've got some infrastructure, a business yeah. plan where you know you're tracking resources around an office or a manufacturing facility or mm -hmm. even a secured environment, and uh, you've got a network architecture, this LoRa architecture that's not connected to corporate assets, not that's internet right. connected for any other corporate purposes, um, using a spectrum that's not a threat to Wi-Fi or anything else. And we went from tracking resources for cleaning or key assets we need to identify, mm -hmm. making sure cleaning crews touched all the right rooms, are right. people even showing up to use their meeting rooms, that yep. kind of thing. Yep. And what we had the opportunity to do was pivot beautifully into a space where a commoditized, highly competitive, uh, dumb device, a bracelet, could be slipped on, join this network, track these resources, and you're capturing all the telemetry to know who was close to who and what windows of time have those been recently cleaned? What, what's the uh, air circulation? What's a blast radius look like if we had a, an event? Then you're getting into more privacy stuff or from a security standpoint, you know, you are articulating and defending this value proposition well that, you mm -hmm. know, there's no overhead, there's no endpoint concerns, there's no patching, there's no, uh, you know, device ubiquity concerns. I think that all plays well, but like 
this is just a beautiful go to market that was a perfect fit to you in my mind. Uh, what yeah. major changes did you have to make to your infrastructure to make this move? No, I think that's right, Trey. And, you know, I did go out of my way to try to build an infrastructure that was adaptable. Yeah. So we wanted that right from the get go um, because it wasn't super clear how the market would evolve and what people would really care about. So that was built into, you know, our cloud strategy, our wireless strategy, our device strategy, our business strategy was was sort of predicated on that. So we did have at least the foresight to know that we weren't going to predict the market well, right? We knew we weren't smart enough to get it right from the start. So let's build it to be flexible. And like yes. you said, yes. you know, the world came our way. And, um, you know, I think that's what startup success, frankly, has always looked like for me is you just got to stick around long enough to your number comes up. Right. <laughs> well, you, you've also made the right investments coming in, right? In terms of application and data architecture, the way that you set up provisioning, um, the ability yeah. to, you, you said this, and this isn't just a buzzword. I'd like for you to unpack this in one of these upcoming sections where you mm -hmm. said democratizing yeah. uh, this information, uh, the ability for this information to be exposed, to be shared, to be collaborated against without right. violating uh, some of the privacy or security sensitivities. Right. Um, you know, if right. you're deployed in a, uh, cleared facility or a government facility, you don't want to correlate which human was on which floor. Like the, there's that's ways right. to easily sanitize that if you architect it that way. But I think you did that from the start. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that was, you know, one of the original insights that we had was that the data privacy was going to be a hot topic yep. and had to be taken head on. And the way I thought about the problem was really, um, I guess, cliche to say first principles, right? I think it's the right place to start, 100%. It, it is. Um, you know, it's also sort of in vogue to say you do it that way. And, you know, I would say, you know, maybe we're just too stupid to know what we didn't know. So we started at the basics, right? But That's um, the, right place to go. the way we thought about it was, you know, what's it like to be an owner of data, a collector of data, a contributor of data in the 21st century? And we found ultimately, you know, a lot of the backdrop assumptions based on, you know, 50 years of technology was I own the database, I own the, I own the data. That's right. Um, and you see a lot of friction over that simple assumption. And I said, you know, is that really a baseline assumption? Do we have to make that assumption? And so instead of thinking about the world as I own the sensor, I own the network, I own the cloud instance, I own the, I own the database, therefore I own the data, which is, I think, the normal sort of um, enterprise intuition about how that works to say, actually, what if you can't assume any of that stuff, if all of those things are fungible, um, but you know on the back end that the intent is people want to use data to make better decisions, what do you got to do in the middle to make it so that it's less clumsy privacy-wise, less clumsy from a sharing perspective, and less duplicative? Because if we keep following that stovepipe of the world, um, I think I used this analogy with you guys earlier, but, you know, the notion that if, if there's five different people who are interested in where my dog is at any given time and I keep bolting a new sensor onto his neck so that everybody can have their own stovepipe view his location, eventually the dog's going to tip over. He's not super strong. That's totally um, fair. It's ridiculous, right? You can't really think about the world that way. You can't even really think about a conference room. You know, you got all these blinking lights in a conference room of things stuck to a table and up on the ceiling and people start to get rightly nervous when they see all that stuff. So there's it's inefficient and wasteful. But I want to zoom back to something you yeah. just said, because I think this is fascinating. So Please. you decomposed something that I think was fashion forward for the time when you were originally building out the architecture of yeah. your, your organization, your technology stack. There's this notion that people have data that they own. 
And then there's observations about that data. We can talk about data information, knowledge, the continuum of where we're creating value. But when we talk about how data is used to drive value, there's a point where you're a custodian of someone else's data, but the observations, the insights, the federation and access of some of those insights, where you're starting to move towards democratization, um, the technology allows you to collect the data, but the data and the observations against it provide the value. Okay. How are you using this data to drive value? You started talking a little bit about yeah. federating that. Can you unpack that a little more for us? You know, our view of how an ecosystem around data should be constructed is, you know, uh, think of it as a pyramid, right? Or I guess the analogy of data is oil, right? Is just, that's ubiquitous now. But the, the realization is that oil is actually a fairly useless product. Um, it's just sticky, gross stuff, doesn't really burn. You know, raw oil is not super useful. It's the process of refinement that turns it into a whole host of different things that are that are useful. And maybe then to drop that analogy to be a little more ecologically friendly, um, you know, when you talk about sort of a pyramid of enrichment, you know, at the baseline, you've got all of these things collecting raw data. Um, and in our case, most of that raw data comes from wireless sensors, which is relatively stupid. It's not particularly um, rife with insight in and of itself. And if I gave it to most of my customers as raw information, most of them wouldn't really know what to do with it because it's fairly low level. Um, And I think that's where a lot of IoT projects have kind of come and gone for people is they just assumed that devices would be as smart as humans are. Like I see that the bathroom needs to be cleaned. Well, uh, humans make a lot of intuitive processing that you're not even aware of. And when you put a sensor in, you just kind of your intuition, I think, is that it will do what the human does quite naturally, but it doesn't. It doesn't know that the bathroom needs to be cleaned. All it knows is there's a chemical signal, there's a motion signal. You know, there's only like 20 things about the physical world you can actually uh, measure. And it doesn't make any leaps (laughs) about what those measuring things are going to matter to. I feel really bad for commuters listening to this and having a mental (laughs) picture. (laughs) I suppose. I suppose. And, um, you know, that the next step up in that pyramid is then to continually combine, refine and improve uh, the data to begin to generate insights out of that raw stuff. And that can be the realm of AI. It can be the realm of human analyst. You know, there's a lot of different ways that data can go from raw to useful. But what we have envisioned is this idea that um, multiple participants in the ecosystem might themselves recombine each layer in the pyramid and create novel insights. Um, Anybody who's doing AI knows that most machine learning wants a lot of rows of data and a lot of columns of data, um, ideally, right? Uh, Good quality data, assuming it. So you want a lot of features, which means you want to combine a lot of different sensor types, but they have to be correlated together so that you know they go along with the same row. And that's not that's not trivial. But if you could do that, the insights you can generate would be novel, potentially powerful, potentially predictive, et cetera. And we wanted to create an environment where that refinement was fluid, that the end purchaser could buy an insight without having any exposure to the, the raw data or the data science that's happening in the middle. And, um, you know, I guess turtles all the way down, right? The ability for people to jump in and add refinement. And that's what the share is really from in the microshare name. It's creating that ecosystem where we can get fluid with the exchange um, so we can add more value to it. That makes a lot of sense. 
one of the things I'm most fascinated about was uh, when we get towards benchmarking, when we start asking sophisticated business level questions, how are we doing in terms of conference utilization or how are we doing in terms of office uh, density or any of these sorts of patterns? That's right. It's one thing to say, hey, you know, we've got a data driven program that's informing how we manage our facilities, how we manage cleaning, how we manage it, uh, measure uh, utilization, energy burn, all these sorts of things. Yeah. Benchmarking becomes fascinating. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we have, I think, four pillars that I talk about in in our sort of product go-to-market. Um, the absolute baseline is collect raw data, right? Make that easy. Uh, if you can't do that, then all of what I've just said goes out the, out the window. So we've spent a lot of time figuring out how to do that at scale, um, which means if you want to deploy 10,000 sensors um, over a weekend, we're the company you're going to call because I've, I've got them in stock. Um, I've got all the installation uh, infrastructure necessary. I can onboard them. So it kind of takes that out of the science project realm. So that's table stakes as far as I'm concerned. I think we're still differentiated in market in that we do that because not everybody's caught up to that, but that's just baseline, right? Um, so now I got a bunch of raw data. What do I do about it? And then the pillars, I think, number one are scoring. So scoring is about aggregating and deriving a useful metric out of the raw data. So scoring might be like a FICO score for your credit, right? Your credit score. Um, taking a whole bunch of data and then reducing it to a single number that um, should represent the complexity of all that data in a useful way. Second pillar then is benchmarking, right? So it helps me to know that my credit score might be a 350, but Jake's is a 750. Um, that's more helpful, right? Okay, well now I can put myself in context of my peers or my potential peers, now that score gets even more valuable. And then on top of that is best practice because the very next thing I want to know is what's Jake doing that I'm not doing? How do I improve my credit score? How do I get from 350 to 450 to 550, et cetera? The final pillar, which actually isn't really a, a stack, it's kind of behind all of these is you can't do any of that without sharing the data in a sensitive way uh, behind the scenes. Because in order to benchmark, I've got to implicitly be able to compare my scores with somebody else's scores. And in order to do best, best practices, I've got to be able to see what I'm doing compared to what other people are doing. You know, I think those are the value add stacks we're trying to make available for all of the use cases we do. Some cases we do that work. Some cases our customers do it themselves. In many cases our partners are getting involved to do that data science. But I think that's how I think about the core stack of that. And... Um, you know, benchmarking, I think, is the first thing that people can really latch onto because just being able to see um, are people, are my peers doing better with getting people, getting employees back to work? Um, is my cleaning crew doing um, a good job of cleaning the kind of space that I have, right? So I, I run an airport and uh, I can see other airports around the world and compare how is my cleaning efficiency doing? Um, is my employee fee, is my customer feedback com comparable versus the amount that I'm spending? And, oh, if it's not, you know, how are other people handling scheduling? How are the people handling supplies? How are other people, you know, doing just in time remediation? You know, then you get into, uh, you know, sharing your best practices. But um, that's that's how I see it kind of breaking out. Yeah, so it sounds like you're really bringing an adult level of sophistication to the data that's being collected by these dumb devices. And that's something that you had mentioned before yeah. uh, that really resonated with me. Yeah. With you collecting all of this data, especially at scale, 
how are you ensuring the integrity of that data um, and the quality of that data? I'm sure that's not a trivial process to undertake. You know, particularly in IoT, you know, there's a lot of buzz about insecurity and, and, and things like that around IoT. And for sure, as you begin to distribute your um, attack surface potential across, you know, 10,000 random tweeping nodes, um, that can be a real uh, potential challenge. But what we have begun to do is really stamp metadata into the information that we collect. The metadata that I store about a particular sensor report um, is massively uh, disproportionate to the data itself. So we're keeping things. I've, I've stolen a lot of concepts out of blockchain, honestly. Um, I've uh, sort of been gratuitously uh, thievery. I'm glad uh, it's that, good for something. That's great. It is good. It is good for something. And, um, you know, things like cryptographic signatures are one of the things that we have uh, adopted so that you can at any time look at the checksum of data you can see how it was initially presented and what you got it at the back end. And as you aggregate, we keep track of the aggregated checksums. You know, it's not quite blockchain because I'm not using distributed databases and things like that. And in the, in the future, maybe we do. Um, if I'm honest, I just don't see it as mature enough today. But the storage mechanism and distribution mechanism barely matters in my model. What's important really is that we know the provenance of the information. You've got fidelity on the supply chain. It all makes sense all the way through. I mean, that, that, that makes perfect sense. That's really great. Absolutely right. And um, being able to, you know, if you think about that, you know, derivation process of continual refinement, you want to be able to trace from the final insight, say it's a, you know, a, a score on your cleaning, that's a single number. Can I go backwards in time and say, what was the data that went into that score? And did that data come from known sources? And can I, you know, get all the way back to, you know, the part numbers and the sources? Um, people are doing that in manufacturing these days. Um, it's been a big sort of physical effort. And when I looked at this, I said, why, why don't we do this immediately in the digital world? Because, you know, why is this any less important to trace, you know, your raw materials all the way back to the supply? So the, we, we've been spending a lot of time with that. If I'm honest, though, most of our customers don't care at the moment. Um, they're not at the level of sophistication where they're worried so much about this uh, because just getting the data, the telemetry has been novel. And if I'm honest, most of them don't really even fully appreciate what's possible with sharing. It's been kind of our bet that as people in the marketplace get more trained on this, they become more aware, they'll get more sophisticated and they'll start asking questions like, hey, wait a minute, how are you managing the provenance of this data? That's right. We'll be like, hey, no problem. Here it is. We, you know, we've been doing this all along. It's a big bet because there's a fair amount of our engineering that's gone into these things that are kind of below the perceptive level of our market. But um, I think at the end, it is what will differentiate us. And when I say we do things at scale, it's not just 10,000 devices, it's 10,000 reliable devices and the insights that come from it have all of this you know, hidden complexity that adds uh, hopefully just that, that level of trust that people will need to make decisions on this information as well. Yeah, and I think it's interesting if you're capturing data and how that data has changed over time, you know, there may be future use cases that your customers didn't even think about, and now they can go back and look at that data and, you know, make important business decisions. So, you know, it, you really are in a unique um, place to be able to be capturing all of this different information that companies can't traditionally track and store. Absolutely, Jake. And I, and I, you know, I think if you go back to first principles, and this won't be shocking to your audience, right? Because we probably have all lived it our entire careers. But 
the intrinsic value of data. You know, if data wasn't valuable, we wouldn't worry about cybersecurity, right? Throwing away data is a bad idea, but accumulating data is a risk. How do you balance those things? And how do you go back, you know, five years from now, you'll look back, how do you know that the data at that time was high quality and what was the context of the data? You know, context is everything. Because without context, you know, the raw data is useless. So how do you develop, you know, robust ways of maintaining that, uh, that tagged context so that you can look back over time and get in, get value out of it? That's the fascinating thing. So a moment ago, you made a comment about, you know, you're capturing metadata about this data. Of course, you mm -hmm. know, it's flowing in, you're, you're enriching it on some level. Yeah. Um, and pairing that to your, I'm going to call it the zero to one comment that customers don't yet care about that next level, about how yeah. or why. Right. I find that on customer journeys that their questions, customer questions improve. Yeah. Um, and that varies widely based upon, you know, time frame or time in seat or general organizational maturity. Mm -hmm. Then you run into some of these really large institutions that have unbelievably good questions. They don't show That's up with right. a 200 question questionnaire. They show up with three questions and they're the hard, hard questions that really inform where you're at. And, yeah. you know, when you start looking at observations, what's, what's my cleaning team's quote unquote credit score? What is the, the, uh, the amalgamated magical output number that scores them? How did you arrive at that? How do you enrich that? How does that compare to elsewhere? It's more than just raw data points. There's a lot of context that you're going to have to find a way to marry up across all these institutions. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I would say that the biggest value we add in what we call the smart network actually is not the network, it's the smart. And what that really boils down to is uh, metadata attribution. Okay. Um, and, you know, very important to be able to, at any point in time, know what the context was. So, for instance, you know, we don't store just the raw telematics. And then you got to look up the tags that belong to telematics because tags change over time. Devices get replaced over time. And if you try to do that as a reference table kind of problem, it really quickly gets out of control. So what you've got to make sure is that every piece of data carries along with it enough context that as as the world changes after its initial initial collection um, it always has what it needs to be able to tell you what it meant um, and we see you know things like asset tracking for instance where people will put a tag on a, uh, a crash cart in a hospital and then they'll track that around and get a sense of where it goes and then three weeks later they'll put the same one on a wheelchair and you know, kind of get a sense of where all their wheelchairs end up. And you know, that's cool. But if you looked at the data later and you assumed that it was on a wheelchair and you saw the initial sort of behavior as a crash cart, it would look very different. So how do you sort of future-proof that by continuing to, to grab the right context and move it through? And actually that's a fairly simple thing. The question is, what if I got the context wrong? So this is a real problem we see, right? Like, oh, I tagged it this way. Um, and then six months later, I realized I should have tagged it that way. What do I do now? I want to update tags. Well, okay, now we've got a problem, right? Now we've got data. You have to unwind the blockchain at that point, right? It's all about unwinding the blockchain. That's it's exactly right. what it's like, Trey. And that's one of the reasons why we can't really <laughs> blockchain it, because you do have to allow some of the data to be updated in retrospect. But you have to be careful about that. And you have to kind of keep the... Uh, fingerprints of that trend, because what if they made a mistake in the mistake? Right. And I think this is that expensive wisdom, right? Like this is why uh, you want to yeah. partner with someone. Uh, one of the things we run into with a lot of companies, um, 
I had not a week goes by. I have not told, Hey, I built my own Heroku and you yeah. know, that's fun because everyone's building their own stack and doing the right thing. How does it scale or where are the more expensive wisdom moments where we've got to solve this problem durably? What are the gotchas along the way? And this is something you will have solved many times over. And this is where yeah. I love partnering with firms that have thought this through, have bled in those problem sets. I don't want to reinvent that. I don't want to learn those lessons. Yeah. That's th- th- this is the good stuff. Yeah. One of my favorite Tommy boy quotes. Um, I hate to get, um, sophisticated <laughs> with you guys, uh, is, uh, you know, I can, I could get a good look at a, at a steak by putting my head up a, a, the cow's ass, but I'd rather trust my butcher. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be the trusted butcher, uh, because most of my clients don't have the time. Honestly, they got day jobs, they're under pressure and, um, they trust me to know what makes a good steak in this case how to know that data is secure, how to know that it has high provenance, how that I'm maximizing its value over time, even if they're not so worried about that yet because they just came to the counter to buy some meat. Later when they go to grill this meat, um, they'll find that I've done all the things I need to do to make it the best experience because what they care about is eating steak. They actually don't care about anything in the middle. And um, you know, if that analogy also is not vegan friendly, what's another one? Um, you know, Ultimately, we've got to we have to be good custodians of the data, which also means not just doing the minimum, doing whatever is conceivably um, predictable that might want to happen with the data and try to do it today, even though it's expensive and it's, you know, it's tricky uh, because we want them to have a good experience on the back end and not regret it. So I think that's a great segue. Um, you know, you're collecting all types of data. Much of that data is very sensitive, you know, maybe personal information, even protected health information. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you approach um, security and to some extent compliance um, for all of the sensitive data that you're collecting. Yeah. So, you know, this is an ongoing journey, I think. Um, obviously, from a startup's perspective, doing things like ISO 20001 is a, is a major kind of goal of ours out ahead. And, um, you know, the big boys have done SOC 2 and everything else, but massively expensive. And I find a lot of it is about getting your paperwork right. So I don't want to poo-poo that because operational discipline and process is really important to me, but you also have to escalate into that. And so we're on our journey really from um, treating, I would say, security as a just daily engineering task to now having the belt and suspenders of not only thinking about it when we engineer, but also having that, you know, triple check uh, that goes along with the more mature processes and documentation process. Um, And we're right in the middle of that. Um, We just did the cyber essentials and GDPR certifications Mm -hmm. in Europe. That was our like first third party official certification. So we completed that in August. And, you know, those are little brothers to things like SOC 2, right? And we host all through other uh, infrastructure, right? So our infrastructure providers, typically AWS and and Azure, obviously those guys are managing and maintaining much more sophisticated levels of compliant. Um, And we know that, you know, we can stand on some of that. We can stand on their backs with some of that. But as we evolve, we really want to have the uh, tools and processes in place that, that allow us to do uh, to stand up as well to those kind of um, uh, auditing uh, requirements. And um, we're trying to do it a little ahead of what our customers are asking for. But, you know, Trey, I think as you pointed out, 
not all customers are created equal. We've got some that are super sophisticated and really know their business. Um, yeah, we get the 300 page uh, questionnaires that we have to fill out, but I'm not entirely sure anybody reads when I submit, but we're doing our really damnedest to answer those questions really well and to understand what's underneath them, what the intent of them is, because it all kind of boils down to what do we need to do to be able to uh, be good custodians of the information, be trusted with it. And would you say that it's predominantly, I guess, regulations and customers that are driving your security and compliance program? Or is it fear? Or is it something else? I think as an entrepreneur, you have to be mostly fearless. So, um, you know, dumb and fearless, I think, is the recipe that I've applied. Um, but customers, I think, bring the fear for you, right? And and sometimes it's well defined fear, right? They've got their 300-page questionnaire. They've got the three boiled down really good questions. And sometimes not. So you have to be able to kind of blind them with science a little bit. You're like, look, I've thought this problem through. Here's the white paper. Here's the complete questionnaire. Here are all the questions you should have asked me. Yep. And we've we've answered. That kind of gives them a way to say, all right, well, I, I, I buy this, right? I don't have time to go through it all, and um, but I'm convinced that you've at least thought about it. And um, that generally gets us through to the next, the next round. But I, I would say we're really customer driven on it. Um, and the challenge is always to stay just a, a step ahead so that we can keep our prices low because, you know, uh, price sensitivities is a thing in the marketplace for sure. We're trying to, part of dem- democratizing is not charging what Accenture would have charged for such a project, which has, you know, teams dedicated to continually answering cybersecurity questions. Um, so, but so to keep my costs aligned, but still be trusted, you know, that's the kind of edge we're walking on a daily basis um, and trying to, you know, just stay ahead of those needs. So it is a, it is a, absolutely a CTO, a daily concern of mine. Um, where are we with this and what's the next level of sophistication taking steps towards the next plateau? And, and you know, regulation isn't insubstantial either, but what we look at, you know, GDPR, we do a lot of business in Europe, so GDPR is really important. But I think what people fail to realize, there's a lot of wiggle room in GDPR. Um, and probably from my perspective, there's too much wiggle room. Uh, people feel a little more comfortable because you say GDPR than they should. And I think that's true of things like the Cal- California uh, Consumer Data Protection as well, and and bills that are that are modeled after those. Um, they're a first step, but I don't think they go far enough. And um, so, yeah, we want to be compliant with their regulation, but I don't want to stop there uh, because I actually think we can do better. I kind of find the same thing as well. You know, I find that a lot of these different regulations and compliance programs, um, you know, they still leave a lot of wiggle room and we're all trying to constantly kind of catch up and address the security compliance privacy needs of, you know, our customers and the yeah. industry as a whole. And Trey, I know you have lots of thoughts on security <laughs> and compliance. Um, you know, having worked with Trey, one thing that he really kind of shaped my view of is that compliance is really a byproduct of engineering excellence. And that's something that's really stuck with me um, over the years as well. So Trey, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, your thoughts in this space? Oh dear. That's, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll make a short one. Yeah. Um, You know, what strikes me with this is um, the byproduct again of excellence in engineering is what security should be. Finding compliance is basically having run that program well. I do take issue with the notion of getting your paperwork right, but if you did build this from the ground up with that in mind, that's that's effectively what it is, is making sure everything's documented correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love from your belt and suspenders reference is that you're bringing a third party in to check your work. 
Um, they're challenging your thinking. They're double checking your assumptions. They're pushing against your implementation to make sure that you did effectively achieve those outcomes. Mm-hmm. GDPR, even PCI, they feel really loose when you look at them. Part of that um, working against that as an implementer is scary because we want clarity. And what mm-hmm. they're trying to do is define outcomes. Uh, PCI, they, they were wise ahead of their time when they started pushing on the intent behind the control. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the letter and intent, what they're trying to do is achieve a certain outcome. They're managing against a certain loss. GDPR is going to be the same way. I think the hardest part with that is um, it's so new and it's so foreign. And what we're getting into now is data sovereignty. And so when we think of ourselves as custodians, the additional layers of controls that follow that, uh, what the different countries are going to uh, want. And now I think we're seeing a game of, uh, I think it's political control. It's a power play. Um, California likes to be the first on the map. And then we're going to see a bunch of other states following. Mm-hmm. And what I think we need to be pushing towards is more of a global approach to this. This is something that I, you know, I would love to see Salesforce get involved in. But ultimately, what we're looking at here is you know, we have users that use our technologies that may or may not be, you know, willing victims, if you will. Uh, the folks wearing your sensors didn't talk to you. <laughs> they, they didn't opt into this. And so what can you find out about their lives? What story can you tell? Uh, stepping up, the the customers that you have, that I have, um, when we think about how we serve them, how do we enable them to defend themselves against us as a platform? Mm-hmm. And so that gets into new concepts. You know, tokenization is not brand new, but in terms of implementation against a privacy standard, or a custodianship standard, like mm-hmm. it's it's a great approach. And these technologies are very new and they come at a high engineering cost because you're mm-hmm. introducing a lot of things that don't necessarily unlock new markets, new capabilities, new features, new sales. Um, but back to Jake's core principle that he was pointing me at, um, I, I, I found that building the security program at Heroku, we were focused on serving the engineers. There are mm-hmm. really bright people working through complex problems and failure modes and solution sets when we talked about expensive wisdom. The mm-hmm. question is, how do we serve them to achieve an outcome that creates safety, durability, and you know, regulatory compliance on the outcome? Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, that partnership's a beautiful thing. And I find, again, going all the way back to the first principles, how do we achieve it? And what, what do we need to think about as we achieve it? That's a big win. One of the challenges I have in many cases is the letter. Um, let, let's just take you know my my average customer and their 200-page security questionnaire. Yeah, they are usually pitched at a very different organization than mine. They usually aren't written with cloud in mind. They're not written with sort <laughs> yes. of a modern distributed organization in mind. They're, yes, yes. They're more they're more of an organizational focus. So the intent is absolutely critical. I find myself trying to read through to the intent in some you know, very pointed questions. You said precision, right? There are some very precise questions that are nonsensical in my context. I nevertheless have to answer. Any, any advice there that you can offer? I do have a lot of thoughts there. Uh, so first and foremost, um, the spirit and intent of a controller of a regulation, I, mm-hmm. I think, is virtuous. And if we focus on that, um, this is where you get into trouble uh, having selected an auditor or having an auditor forced on you. Mm-hmm. Um, none of these regulations, save that of perhaps the CSA or really modern stuff, is thinking about shared responsibility models. Yeah. Um, to your point, you work on AWS, you work on Azure. All right, they give you a raw database. Did you lock mm-hmm. it down? Is it exposed? Mm-hmm. How do you manage uh, authentication? How are you logging? Is there MFA? Mm-hmm. Like you, you pull that string. Now you've got a body of common controls. How many regulations does it take to screw in a light bulb? I mean, yeah. to define a secure password. Right. As it turns out, all of them. So this is something that uh, I've really tried to empower Jake with. Jake was my partner in responding to a lot of uh, questionnaires inbound from customers that want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And they've all got a unique questionnaire. Uh, so the Cloud Security Alliance has something we call the cake. 
Um, yeah. It's a consensus questionnaire that gives a common body and a crosswalk through the CCM, a crosswalk of, we want to talk about passwords. Here's everybody and their dog, the major standards globally that talk about password controls. This is how they yeah. map. And yeah. so that turns into a fairly uniform, singular way to do this. Yeah. You have a star assessment or someone check your work on that. You've at least got a starting place for that conversation. That should be confirming you're roughly tall enough to ride that ride, but it's one audit, one questionnaire, and one starting yeah. place for a conversation. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you said that because that's what we're doing. We're using this CSA. And you added value, Trey, right. um, because I didn't know it was pronounced cake. So I can't, tell you, I can't tell you how much time uh, organizationally we wasted it by saying CAIQ. <laughs> that is money in my pocket right there, the time saved. So that's, that's awesome. But yeah, I, I think we've tried to do that too because we do see that um, the CSA is obviously coming from it from a slightly more modern, less enterprise, but still robust perspective. And, and, the, and the traceability back to all these other standards really does help align intent. So we've been pretty happy with that. And, and what we've tried to do is be proactive with our customers because, um, you know, frankly, the business is usually our, our point of contact with sales, right? It's not generally IT that comes shopping for what we offer. Um, but we try to involve IT really early on, even though the business often resists that. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways we try to involve them is to say, look, here we have this um, robust questionnaire and a white paper that goes along with it. And can you please immediately go contact your IT department if you have a CISO or something like that? And great, forward it on to them and at least let them know that you're considering this. And we want to try to be proactive and say, look, here's the way we think about this problem. And if you still want to send me your questionnaire, I'll do my best to fill it out. But in the end, I hope to head those things off by being proactive and saying, look, let's engage in um, proactively that conversation about security. So um, so you're not like catching up later, because I think that's the flaw in the, in the process is, hey, we bought this thing. Go take a look at it. Yeah, and I think you're taking the right approach there. I mean, being proactive, right? You know, the first thing I do when I get a questionnaire with like 3,000 questions on it, um, you know, I immediately schedule, you know, I'm meeting with the customer just to make sure we're speaking the same language. You know, what is the delineation of responsibility? You know, who's responsible for what? Um, and we've actually kind of created an extension to the CSA cake. We call them our security and compliance runbooks. Um, but that really walks the customer through like, what are these major like responsibilities that they have when using the Heroku platform? And we found that a great way to kind of bridge some of that gap and to quickly, you know, move on to providing the customer value in helping them understand, you know, what they can do um, to make sure that their usage of the service is secure. Yeah, I think uh, that sounds, that resonates a lot, Jake, because I think responsibility is often at the core of the confusion, right? I get a lot of questions about how we manage the admin passwords. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I shouldn't know what your admin password is because you should be the admin for some of these things. So making it clear, like this isn't a managed service per se, although it is a SaaS offering, right? So you really got to get into the weeds there to talk about, well, obviously I have a cloud admin and how do I manage his password, but that's not specific to your deployment. And in the end, your deployment ought to follow your password policies, but I don't know what they are. Um, I just want to support them. So, you know, yes. there's so many layers to like a cloud level accountability that that's probably a helpful thing to do. Well, I think we're kind of heading towards the end here. Um, I wanted to give you both an opportunity to give some closing thoughts. Uh, you know, Trey, I'll let you go first so that Tim can end here. What's fascinating about this is this isn't a conversation about the actual IoT devices. This is about enriching and understanding. 
not the data, but the information and the context and creating value that's meaningful on a personal level, on an organizational level, on an ecosystem level. I'm, I'm encouraged at the, uh, the thinking going on. And uh, I'm super excited about the kind of pivot that you, you all were able to make uh, in response to this. This seems like a very natural and logical extension. And uh, I think this is also an encouragement for our listeners to think about building some of these capabilities from a security and privacy standpoint um, as they're designing and building their infrastructures. So Tim, do you have any closing thoughts as well um, that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah. Um, in the end, I think one of the things that I'm trying to move the market towards, and as you mentioned, Jake, you know, what does it mean to be a good uh, custodian of that personal information? Isn't just keeping it secure because I think the, the industry has this knee-jerk reaction to lockdown. And in a time like this, the power of the data is to open it up. But as you said earlier as well, we're flirting with health data here. You know, we, tr we try to be clear about that line and not go over it. But let's be honest, when lives are at stake, um, it's not a moral line that you can defend, even if it is a legal one. And, and so we do need to be really careful with the information we have. But part of that care is to recognize that putting the data back into the hands of the people who can make best use of it, um, particularly in the context of COVID, um, giving the data back to the people who are going to be able to protect their coworkers and their friends and their family because you've not locked down the data. You've taken the exact opposite approach to privacy and opened it back up to them and given them their own control of what real consent means, given them visibility, given them control, given them agency over the data and what it means. You know, that's the opposite of locking it down. I think that's the wrong reaction, although it's the simple first reaction to minimizing the risk. In our case, I think the greatest risk is that we overlock this data. We don't exploit it to its full potential for making people's lives better. And I think that's part of the current moment. But I think it extends beyond as well, because as I see it, you know, being data driven isn't going to go away and it shouldn't go away because individually and societally, it makes sense for people to run businesses better, to operate governments better, to make better individual choices. And as humans with monkey brains, I think having data at our fingertips that's that's carefully curated um, is what's going to be able to allow us to collaborate globally, to make better use of resources, to optimize human well-being and comfort. All of those things that we struggle with societally right now, I think in the end, I'm not saying that data is a panacea, but it's, a, I think, a really critical um, recipe in the medicine that we all need to take. And if we lock it down too much, I'm just afraid it's going to stay out of the light. And that's where bad things happen, right? It's in the dark. So, you know, as much as I want to be secure and everything else, our, our privacy stance is really to say privacy comes through transparency and not through obfuscation. And that is also about making the, the data more available. Um, to the end users. You have to put it back in the power of the people who are contributing the data. Um, and that's sometimes controversial uh, stance, but I think that's the path of true maturity. You know, you go through cloud um, as an in initial step, then you go back to mobile, and that's kind of taking it, centralizing it, then decentralizing it, and then decentralizing it some more. And Trey, you mentioned earlier, what does it mean to democratize? That's what it means. It's not trusting Big Brother with our data, it's trusting each other with our data. And um, how do you do that sensibly, right? You still have to be good custodians of that data. You still have to trust your platform. But yeah, that's the journey we're on. Um, and again, I'm not sure the market 
is ready for it. But, um, you know, as a startup, uh, if you're not going to do something different, what gets you up in the morning, right? It isn't, it isn't more IoT sensors in my case. It's, it's more power to the people by giving them good, good insights to make decisions on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, transparency is key to trust. So I think you hit on all the right points there. Right on. Well, that's all the time that we have today. I would like to thank our special guest, uh, Tim Paganos, for an insightful and topical conversation about health metrics at scale. And I'd also like to thank our special co-host, uh, Trey Ford, for bringing his uh, perspective as always. Thanks, Jake. Yeah, this has been awesome. Um, it's great to be part of uh, Codish and all the really cool topics you guys bring forward. So I, I'm humbled and gratified to be, be part of it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.